we got a couple of takers. We'll let them settle. Good morning, church. As we continue to look at worship in the life of a believer uh, this morning, we've, we've already talked this morning about how God is the one who's always initiating. God is the one, he's the one who shows up first, and then our worship is a response to him. And a couple of words that can help us remember that, they're, they're a little, you know, preachers like to use alliteration, right? Uh, revelation and response. Revelation is the things that are exposed by God, the things that are revealed by God. And sometimes I think even, you know, when we think of the word revelation in the church, we think of that last book of the Bible, right? And we think that revelation somehow means, or, or even the word apocalypse means something horrible happening. But apocalypse, revelation, means things that are unveiled. And so at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, everything about God and his glory, his justice, his might, his love, his grace, his mercy, they're unveiled. And in Scripture, we have this unveiling of God's personality, if you will, of his, the way he acts, the kind of God that he is. And in our lives, we also have an unveiling of God as he displays his wonder, his glory, again, his graciousness to each one of us. Sometimes we don't have eyes to see it, but when we're alert, when we're paying attention, we see God. The book of Romans says that in, that in creation, God has given us everything we need to understand about his character and his qualities, his goodness, his, his, the reality of his presence. And so worship is a pouring back out of that. But in the last two weeks, we've really looked at the Old Testament, and we've looked at what it looked like and what we could learn from Old Testament worship. And we saw first and foremost that God is the one who defines worship. We looked at the first books of the Bible here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we noticed that over and over and over and over again, God is giving rules for worship. He's setting parameters for worship. He's saying, this is how I want you to worship me. So God is the one who defines and delineates what worship is. And then last week we looked at Psalm 92 and saw how uh, really worship is something that is not just an obligation. There, there is an essence, in essence an obligation here because God is worthy of worship. But, but also there's delight in it that our response to God is revelation of himself, that the way that we kind of finish that feedback loop back to God of his own greatness and goodness there's so much joy in it for the believer. And I want to invite you today to consider that joy uh, once again. And I, what I mentioned last week is that if you're not feeling joy in worship, it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with you. Uh, it's not, this is not an indictment, but it's an invitation to open your eyes and to see God more clearly. Because we are people by design. We are people who, when we see things that are wonderful, we delight in them, and we want to share about them. We want, we want to say how good they are. And you can just think back over the last week. Have you shared with any friend or family member something that you found incredible or delightful or, or you know, impressive? 
Because most of us do that on a pretty regular basis. Oh, I've got to tell you about this movie I saw. Oh, have you heard about this restaurant? Oh, you've got to, you know, check out this new app, right? Whatever it is. And, and we do that so naturally. So when we have eyes to see God, we do it to him as well. But today, we're just going to take a little shift in our intention and look at this reality of the New Testament worship, how it's different from what we have in the Old Testament. And so I'm really focusing on today that we are worshiping in Christ. We're not worshiping uh, uh, in any other way than in Christ alone. And see how that compares with the worship that we experience in the Old Testament. Now, we are using a couple of definitions that uh, I want to point your attention to. If I can get this. Can you help me out, Ed? When we look at what worship is, we're really saying that it's this process by which we're saying out loud and in our hearts really what the glory of God is. We're, we're ascribing and displaying honor to God, and we're doing it in a manner that's worthy of his character and worthy of his actions. And so that's kind of that first week we looked at, how God is the one who defines worship and delineates it. But we also had a more simple definition, which is from our English word worship, which is worth-ship. And so worship is just, Ed, it's still not working, if you can help me out, is showing by your words and actions what God is worth to you. It's a really simple way of thinking about it. And again, we do this naturally in life. We do it naturally in our relationships. The things that are worth a lot to us, we show it by our words and actions. And so today, as we look at worshiping Christ, I do want to kind of go back and look at what worship was like in the Old Testament and how it's different in the gospel. So in the Old Testament, you remember, one of the primary ways that people worship God was through sacrifice. But you couldn't just make those sacrifices anywhere. You, there was a certain time, a certain place, a certain protocol that had to be followed. But certainly in the Old Testament, we also see worship with music. We see worship with uh, people making vows to commit their lives to the Lord. We see worship in the way that people name things and describe things. But if you were to look at a person of Israel, and you see glimpses and, and echoes of this today in the Jewish community, is that we have places of worship that are localized, like in the home, so if you have any Jewish friends that maybe they're not, they're not available on Friday nights because they're having Shabbat dinner. And when they have that Shabbat dinner, that's a form of worship. And as they gather, they say certain things. They recite and recall certain realities of what God has done every time they gather together. And in certain uh, Jewish sectors of the Jewish community, uh, anytime food passes their lips, they'll say a little prayer to bless the Lord. Whenever they walk into a room, they'll touch the mezuzah. You remember, you've seen those little things on the doorposts of people's houses? And inside is a little scroll uh, with, written on scripture testifying to the goodness of God. And so they just touch that as they enter. Just to remember, even as I enter this space, I'm honoring the Lord, I'm blessing him. There's all sorts of things that they do in their home. And then there are special holy days, holidays, that they, again, recite scripture, that they recall what God has done that his goodness is on their lips. And then also they have the time in the synagogue. This is the time where a local community will gather together to sing praises, to say prayers, 
to read from the scripture, to have teaching, instruction. This is a communal moment. And then they had the temple. And the temple was where the whole nation would gather. Really, all believers on earth would gather to worship the Lord. And this was where the sacrifices were made. This is where uh, all sorts of uh, activity was going on around the things of God. And from everything from the way the people were dressed to the words they said to the actions they took, they were all meant to show that God is glorious, that God is wonderful. They were all actions of praise. Now, in the church today, we don't have a national temple, correct? There's not one place where we all go. And I think if, apart from maybe if you are at home listening to worship music, you probably don't think much about worshiping at home either. Some of you do. But I think a lot of us, we kind of, we go through the day, and that's not really the emphasis of our thought. It's not every item of clothing we put on. It's not every doorway we walk through. It's not every item that passes our lips for food. We aren't thinking to praise the Lord. But we do have the church. We do have that local community. It's kind of a parallel to the synagogue. And for so long in the church, especially here in the West, the church has been the primary place of worship, almost to the exclusion of other places. Now, we have seen a worship renewal movement come through where now you've got, you could go to, uh, we actually went to uh, the Boston Garden to a worship concert, right? And, and so you can do things like that. But by and large, we often see worship as something that happens in a gathered community, mostly with singing, because we don't have sacrifices anymore. We don't wear those clothes anymore. Even the food we eat doesn't display glory to God. We don't keep kosher. And guys, I'm not suggesting that we need to or that we should even. But notice that something is kind of stripped away and lost when some of these activities are stripped away and lost. Do you see the difference? But I want to suggest to you that in the gospel, worship is intended to be more an aspect of your entire life than even it was in the Old Testament. And so, if you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to look at what Jesus says about worship. It's a short passage. It's not all up here, but we'll read, we'll read more of it than is up there on the screen. John 4, some of you may recall, is the story of Jesus encountering this woman at a well in Samaria. Uh, we don't need to know all the background information to understand what he's saying here, but just know this. The Samaritans were considered a separate people group from the Jews. So Samaria was a part of Israel, but it was populated by the conquerors of Israel. So when the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and later the Greeks, when they conquered this area, and then the Romans, they repopulated people from all over the empire here in Samaria. And the people who lived there were cast out. Now, if you know the story of ne Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, you know, some of those great stories in the scripture, God called the people of Israel back to Jerusalem and back to basically what was the kingdom of Judah before the exile. But there's this pocket right in the middle of the nation that's not predominantly Jewish, but they did carry on some of the traditions of Judaism. So, for example, they accepted and believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they didn't accept the things that come after. They didn't accept the prophets. They didn't accept the stories of David and, and Solomon as scripture. So they only followed those first five books. And so one curious little element is that uh, when Abraham goes to worship, he worships on a mountain in Samaria. And so the Samaritans worship on that mountain because there's no history in their tradition of the temple they don't worship in Jerusalem. And so God's talking to this Samaritan woman and he does some beautiful things speaking into her life. I strongly encourage you to read it if you haven't. But this Samaritan woman starts kind of testing him to see what he's all about. And she asks him a question. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet because he's already spoken things to her about herself that no one else could know. She said, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. By the way, when he says woman, that's a term of endearment. Uh, he's not minimizing her in any way. He honors her throughout this passage. He says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And the woman replies, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. So this woman is anticipating the coming of the Messiah. She recognizes Jesus as a prophet, and so she asks him a burning question. And this burning question is, will we worship here, where we Samaritans think is appropriate to worship, or do we have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship where the Jews worship? Now, this is a theological question. It's also a political question because there's huge implications if the Samaritans need to submit to the rulership and the leadership of the Jews. Uh, but there's also this personal question. This is her tradition. This is how she's grown up. This is where her family worships. This is where her friends would worship. This is where her whole community worships. And might Jesus be disrupting all of that? And in a sense, the answer is yes, and in a sense, the answer is no. Yes, he says, actually, you're wrong. You're worshiping in ignorance. You worship what you do not know because you've rejected the word of God. Not in entirety, but many aspects of it. You've rejected it. So you worship in ignorance. And I do wonder how many of us believers might worship in ignorance because we reject the whole counsel of God. Some of us might do it consciously. Some of us do it subconsciously. There are definitely people in this world who claim the name of Christ who say, well, uh, this is Scripture, but that's not. This is Scripture, but over here, not so much. We see that, right? But also we have this thing where, um, I don't know, we say we believe the Bible, but there's maybe whole parts of it we've never even read, never even thought about, never considered. Or we might pit some aspects of Scripture against another so that we can avoid the clear teachings of God and His Word. We all do this at times. I think every one of us has done this. And so Jesus says, that's no good. That's no good. 
He says, we Jews, on the other hand, we worship what we do know. We worship in knowledge. We worship, uh, there's an aspect of truth and accuracy in the way that we worship because we, we take the whole counsel of God. And I think there's a lot of Christians, uh, hopefully many of us in this room, who desire deeply to worship out of knowledge, out of truth, out of the whole counsel of God. And then Jesus says, and yet, and yet. He says, that's not enough. It's not enough to worship in ignorance, sure. It's also not enough to worship in knowledge. He says, God is seeking a different type of worshiper. One who worships in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. And what does he mean by that? Jeff, I, I don't know why this isn't... Um, hey, guys, maybe I should have turned it on. <laughs> I, blame this, I blame this on my, on my really cha rapidly changing vision for, for up-close items. Look at that. That's beautiful. I mean, I can see that fine. I just can't see whether this is on or not. That's funny. Where were we? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. And what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and we have some clues to what it means right here in the passage. And the very first thing is that uh, spirit and truth is, does not mean just worshiping in knowledge. Right? And it certainly doesn't just mean worshiping emphatically. Sometimes we think worshiping in spirit. Oh, we want to worship with our whole heart. Yes, by all means, worship with your whole heart. But that's not what we're talking about. Because there's a clue here. Jesus is saying worshiping in spirit and truth is something that couldn't have happened before. And yet the time is coming and has now come when it can happen. Is it that the people in the Old Testament couldn't worship with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Of course not. Is it that they couldn't worship in truth? No. Jesus says they worship what they know. But there was one thing missing. It was Jesus. Jesus is the requirement for worshiping in spirit and in truth. You think of it like this. Um, uh, the Bible, uh, Jesus says, um, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. He's kind of making this correlation between what God is like and what his worshipers should be like. And we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks and even prior to that in our Roman series on how everything that's set apart for God Everything that's sacred and holy, that word sacred means set apart. Anything that you want to use to glorify God needs to reflect the character of the God you want to honor. This is why I mentioned a few minutes ago that even the, the Jewish people, the way they dressed was to show honor to God. What did they, do you know what, like the big thing with Jewish clothing? You can't have two types of fabric mixed together. Okay, like cotton shirt, fine. Wool jacket, fine. Uh, cotton poly blend, big no-no. Why? Because it shrinks in the wash? No, no, it's nothing like that. It's because God is pure, so even the clothes you wear need to be pure of one substance. If you bring an animal to the altar, it can't have a defect. Why? Because God has no defects. So if you bring a defective animal to God then you're saying, you're really not all that great. You're not worthy of the best. You're only worthy of this 
limping animal that I kind of want to get rid of because it's going to slow down my herd when we go out to pasture. You see, so it's, it's every time that you worship, every time you set something apart to honor the Lord, it has to be like the God that you're worshiping. And so if, as Romans 12 tells us, that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, if our worship is, is, the, is the surrender of our very selves to the holy God of creation and the God of our salvation, then we need to be holy like God. Only problem is, it's more than just not limping. With an animal, you know, no defects, great, it's good to go. But with human beings, there's this other factor that's involved. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of heart defects. My heart doesn't reflect the heart of God as well as I would like. My character doesn't display God's holiness to the degree that I would hope. And that's why God sent Jesus. That there was always a barrier between the worship of God's people and himself because of sin, because of broken relationships, because of lacking trust, because of refusal to surrender to the will of God. And so Jesus sent one for us who could be just like him to come in our stead. Jesus, the Holy One of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Righteous One of God. He came and He died for your sins and for mine. He came and He put Himself on the cross to bear your shame and your penalty and the cost of sin, which is death. Not only did He do that, but in doing so, He died, put to death our sin, He rose again in glory, and He reconciled us to the Father. And then not only that, but the righteousness that was his, when he took our sin, he gave us his righteousness. He put his righteousness on us so that we could be fully in the presence of God, so that we could honor him, so that we would be worthy sacrifices for the Lord. But sacrifices that don't have to die, sacrifices that have to live. Because in Christ, we also have eternal life. So even if these shells pass away, it's not the end for us because we have hope for all eternity in Jesus Christ that life will overcome death, that hell has been defeated, that sin has been overcome. And this is the great hope of the gospel. Okay, so what does this have to do with worship? Well, finally, finally in Jesus Christ, we can be that worthy offering for the Lord. We can worship more fully. And here's the greatest part of this. God is spirit, so he gives us his spirit so we can worship him in spirit. Now, there's a couple of names for this spirit, right? Most often we call him the Holy Spirit, right? He's also called the Spirit of Christ. And so it is not only Christ who empowers and enables us to truly worship, but then his spirit comes to us so that we can also in that manner be like God and reflect back to him the glory due his name. And we can worship in spirit. And so to worship in spirit requires worshiping in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, 
There's no other way. And then there's that truth piece. And already in the book of John, so this is John chapter 4, in John chapter 1, already John calls Jesus the truth twice. And then after this, in John 14, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in the end, when Jesus says to worship in spirit and truth, what he's saying is worship in him. He is the embodiment of spirit and truth. His, he is the, and, and literally, like think about what the word embody means. He is the spirit of God in a body. He has embodied it. He is truth in a person. And guys, I want to tell you, the Jewish people, for, for everything that was given them, they knew it. The truth. They had the knowledge. If you have the knowledge, that's fantastic, but it's not enough because the true knowledge is the knowledge of a person. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't say, I have the way, the truth, and the life. He says, He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about a path He can show you, it's about Him being the path. Right? He is the way. It's not about a truth He can tell you. He is the truth. And so as you come to him, you have the truth. And when we read that in Christ is the truth and the truth will set me free, you understand it's Jesus that sets you free, not the knowledge. If you divorce Christ from the knowledge, that doesn't work. You, you, you need that knowledge. You need the understanding. But these propositions of this is true and that's true and this is wrong and that's wrong, those have limitations. They have they have. Uh, inability to encompass everything that is true. But when you find Jesus, you get everything that's true. Does that make sense? You know, we talk, we live in a world where nothing's true and everything's true all at the same time. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am saying that if you're trying to have exhaustive knowledge of an infinite being, your brain can't do it. You run out of time, you run out of space, you run out of intellect, you run out of everything. I actually suggest to you, I've said this probably a dozen times over the years, even when you get to heaven, you won't know everything because there's too much for a finite brain to know because there's an infinite being who created everything and he himself cannot be housed in our mental faculties to completion. So even if we know everything that God's revealed, there's still things we don't know. But when we know the person God has revealed, when we know Jesus Christ, we have everything. Because in him is all truth. In him is the fullness of the Spirit of God. And then, get this, guys. He's in us, and we're in him. Bam. That is worthy of worship. This is the God that we have. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who gave his son on the cross so that we could have him. And when we worship God, we get more of him. We get more of him when we worship. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so when Jesus says, you know, Jesus could do this. He could say, look, because of the new age coming, you can worship on the, on the mountain and you can worship on the temple. He could have said it like that. And in a sense, it would have also been true. As a believer in Christ, you can go to the temple mount today and you can worship. And you can go to the mountain and you can worship. 
and it will be God-honoring worship. But he's saying is that these, the actual systems of worship are dying away. You're neither going to worship on the mountain nor at the temple. And by the way, that's very real. Like you, you literally cannot go to the temple now and offer a sacrifice. And there are people working very hard to prepare for the rebuilding of that temple and the reinitiation of those sacrifices. There are people whose whole lives are devoted to that right now. But Jesus says, neither of these. Neither of them. Because the ultimate temple has come. The ultimate sacrifice is about to be paid. We don't need this anymore. Something better is coming and has now come. And this woman at the well says, I'm looking forward to that Messiah who's going to come and restore all things. And Jesus says, I am the one. I am he. You don't have to wait any longer. You've found it. It's here. If all of this is true, then God is inviting us to allow our entire lives to be lives of worship. That earlier slide talking about in the Jewish community, worship in the home and worship in the synagogue and worship at the temple. That's, that's really great, actually. That's pretty amazing to have lives devoted so much to God. But what if it could be anywhere and everywhere? What if the very life you're living was worship to the Lord? I think that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 12 when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is your pleasing or reasonable act of worship. Or, or some translations, fitting, appropriate act of worship. What could be more appropriate than the God who died for you being honored by you living your life for him? What could be more pleasing? What could be more reasonable? I'll tell you one thing. If our concept of worship stops when the music stops, we are grossly underperforming in worship. And I use that word very intentionally because uh, we often think of things like this as a performance. But if it's a performance, it's not for you. It's for him. This is a definitely a little aside, but you know, some churches have choirs. We don't have a choir, right? Right? Or do we? Because the choir is not singing for you. The team's not singing for you. The job of whoever is up here is to facilitate you singing for him. But if the worship stops when the music stops, we've missed it. Because the worship is just one small expression. The music is just one small expression of worship. It's the whole of our life. Why? Well, God deserves it. God deserves it. How could he ask you for anything less? I think I mentioned it earlier in our music time, but I'm praying. Um, Jesus has bought you at a price. And what was the price? If you were to put yourself on the market, what would the dollar value be? 
You know, if you go and apply for life insurance right now, you have to justify a human life value as a top amount that you can be insured for. So there are actuaries who can put a dollar value on your life. It's kind of interesting to think about. If you lost your loved one, how much, uh, because of someone's negligence, how much would you expect them to compensate you to pay for the grief and anguish of your lost loved one? Probably most people start thinking somewhere in the millions. Fair enough? Why not billions? Why not trillions? And here's a different kind of question. What is the value and the worth of the life of God? What is Jesus' human life value? And I would just simply suggest to you that an infinite creator being has an infinite value. And so that value divided by all the people who were covered by his sacrifice, he bought you with an infinite and blank check. He paid the greatest price for you. And he says, I don't want, your, I don't want you to die. I want you to live in return. Live in return. And here's the best part. If you do it, you're going to be better off for it. It's, it is a sacrifice, but it's not the kind of sacrifice that leaves you with less. It's the kind of sacrifice that leaves you with more. In fact, your flourishing as a human being requires that you submit yourself wholly and fully to God. And as you do that, God will use that process to reshape you and reform you. And get this, into the image of Christ, into the image that was imprinted upon you in creation when God says, let us make man and woman in our image. And then if you'll indulge me to look more fully like yourself than you could possibly have ever imagined. Because as you become more like Christ, you become more the you that God intended you to be. And that is your ultimately true reality. So worship is not about begrudgingly giving God what he's requiring. That's one of the conceptions of worship in other religions, isn't it? You know, appease the gods or a bad thing will happen. You know, or, or to, to bribe them to do something good for you, which is what it really is when you make a sacrifice for your fertility or for your crops or for whatever. Let me, let me bribe the gods or let's, let me assuage their anger. Let me turn their wrath away so that I can experience a better life. But that's not what the Christian faith is all about. God says, uh, I've already given you the greatest gift I can give you. Why would I not give you all the others? And if things happen that, that are challenging for you or difficult for you or that you don't understand, I'll make myself available to you to walk with you through it so you don't have to do it alone. And then all of the things that God now commands, they're not ultimately burdens, but they're actually ultimately part of that being freed by the truth that is Christ. And so I just pop up a couple of verses here 
Uh, I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version on each one. Uh, this, is, this is now in light of what we've said. It kind of changes the way we might approach these things and understanding that if our whole life is meant to be worship, our whole life is a response to what God's done for us, then the commands of Scripture no longer carry any kind of negative uh, weight, but they're actually the weight of freedom. These, these, really, it's a weight being lifted off. By the way, in the passage that we read in, in John, you may have noticed it says that God seeks out worshipers. God seeks out worshipers. So even, even the idea that you're being drawn into worship is because of God first initiating. Isn't that powerful? When the Bible says those who seek him find him, he has already sought you. That's why you'll find him, because he's not far off. He's close at hand. All right, so let's look at these passages. Uh, First, uh, First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. This is the passage that talks about praying without ceasing. Praying without ceasing, doesn't that feel burdensome when you read it? Anyone? Does it feel impossible, like God's setting you up for failure? Anyone feel like that? Um, Anyone read that and think, oh, I, I, I don't know, not only do I not know if I can do that, I don't know if I have any interest in doing that. But what if this is an invitation, pray without ceasing, what if that's an invitation to just have this deep intimacy with Jesus Christ who is spirit and truth? What if that's an invitation to be in constant dynamic relationship with the God of the universe? It says, here's it in context, rejoice always. That doesn't sound like a burden. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He's he's inviting you into this deep abiding joy as you interact and communicate with him on a consistent basis, on a continual basis. It's not a burden. Let's look at, uh, what do we have next? Philippians 2, 3 through 4. That is, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others before yourselves. Well, that sounds like a sacrifice, doesn't it? But what if God is saying, hey, this is kind of how I operate. I gave my life for others. I didn't do it out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, even though if anyone had the right to, it was me. But I, I willingly lay myself down for you. So if you lay yourself down for others, two things will happen. One, you're going to start looking more and more like Jesus. But two, you're going to experience the great goodness that comes from being like the God you worship. And that those acts of self-sacrifice are, in fact, acts of worship to God as well. Uh, John 13, 34. uh, It's where Jesus tells his disciples to love one another. Love one another. Well, why? Because it honors the Lord, because it displays his glory, because that's the kind of God we have. He's one who loves. And your life will be better for it. 
Now, by the way, if you love one another, are you going to be taken advantage of sometimes? Probably. You're going to be hurt when relationships end or there's distance or, or whether from moving or from conflict? Yeah, yeah, you will. But who's going to be there with you in that moment? The Spirit of Christ to be with you through it, to help you grow through it, to help display His own glory through you in that process. These things are not trivial things. I think we're, in our culture, we're so accustomed to evaluating things based on how they make us feel, whether it's something that feels good to us, that we forget that there are things more important than us in this world. And I think even in different cultures, there's more of a sense of that. For example, maybe, maybe the society is more important than the individual. And, you know, we kind of chafe at that a little bit, and I think some of that's healthy and good. But is, God, is God's glory more important than mine? Is God's glory more important than my comfort? My goodness, yeah. But again, when you live that way, it actually frees you up. It frees you to not be so dragged down by the things of this world. What I'm trying to uh, convey here is that worship is this mixture, it's this combination of what God deserves and also what promotes our flourishing. And so these, again, these commands take on a different, uh, a different timber, a different uh, coloring in the, in the lenses that we're looking through. I think we've got 1 Peter 1, 16. Be holy as I am holy. I tried that once. It didn't seem to work. Well, praise the Lord, Jesus did it for me. And because he did it for me and because his spirit is in me, now I can start doing it in practice just as he's done it for me in, in, in my inner being and the reality of who I am gets played out in the things that I do and the ways that I think. And God is shaping me and God is shaping you so that you can live out the reality of that legal exchange of Jesus taking your sins and giving you his righteousness. You can live out of that. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing. It's beautiful. We already talked about Romans 12.1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is your pleasing act of worship. Uh, what else? We, oh, Hebrews 13. Um, we're reminded to bring a sacrifice of praise the lips that profess his name and also doing good and sharing with others. It's words and it's action combined in worship that is somehow this sacrifice of giving up, a yielding, because that's what a sacrifice is. It's a yielding to the Lord of either your possessions, your ideas, your, your will, yourself, uh, Matthew 22, 33-40. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you find it interesting that when Jesus talks about the most important commandment, it's not of anything to do with your external reality. It has everything to do with the internal disposition of your heart. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. 
which under normal circumstances, laws could never measure. How do you, how do you determine whether someone loves enough to not be breaking the law? Because laws typically deal with externals. But Jesus flips the whole thing on its head and says, no, the, the real law is about the internal. It's the same thing that the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. He flips understanding of law on its head and he says, externals are important, but the internal is way more important. And so, do you love the Lord? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? And if you recall, this is the passage that prompted our entire series here on worship and hospitality. Worship is loving God. Hospitality is loving your neighbor. And by the way, they're both worship. Hospitality is just another form of worship. Because everything's worship. At least everything can be worship when your heart is attuned to the Lord, when you are indeed abiding in Christ and Christ is in you. When you are actively, intentionally doing it all for His glory and for His name, everything is worship. Everything. My quick takeaway for today is that true worship is a life or a lifestyle of praise offered by those who are in Christ, empowered by Christ, and offering that praise through Christ. So surprise, surprise, church. What makes your worship true in some ways is not you at all. It's about Jesus, because it always is about Jesus. It's like a you know, little kid's Sunday school. Whatever question they ask, just say, Jesus. You'll be right most of the time. But to do all that through Jesus, there is an attuning, an turning of the heart that is necessary, that's different, that's unique to the life of a believer, but is not automatic in the life of a believer. Just saying, I believe in Jesus, does not mean that you're living your life truly as a sacrifice to God that you're living a life of worship. That's why all these passages, that's why Romans 12, that's why John 4, that's why uh, uh, Hebrews 13, that's why they're all exhorting us to do it because it doesn't just happen. It takes a focus. It takes a yielding. And it takes a trusting. In Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. I want to pray for you, and then I want to give you a moment to pray it on your own. Uh, and what I invite you to pray about is to, to ask the Lord a couple of questions and just see if he has a response for you. Because we believe that the Spirit of Christ is in you, and I'm not, I'm not expecting you to hear audible words, but that there might be a leading on your heart as you listen to the Lord. And to ask the Lord simply this, God, what do you want me to know about worship? What do you want me to, to, to take away? Maybe it's something uh, from this sermon, but maybe there's something else that God's been trying to get your attention about in regards to worship. You know, what do you want me to, to know? And then the second is, Lord, in light of that, is there anything you want me to do so that my life, and again, we have this um, simple definition. Is there anything you want me to do that would show you what you're worth to me? 
So I'll pray, and then you'll get a moment to pray. Lord, we've said it already, but God, you're, you're deserving and worthy of all our worship. God, you've paid the price. You've initiated the whole thing. And God, there's nothing that we can add to what you've done to, to really give you more glory. God, what we want to do is display that glory. That in our lives, we would actually have a, a, a reality of, of being that reflection that you always intended from the beginning. That your image would be imprinted and stamped on us in such a clear way that others couldn't miss how great you are when they look at our lives. And again, not for our sake, but for yours. Now, God, even as we say that, we welcome the blessings that come as we worship you with our lives. We welcome the blessings that come as we sing out praises to you. We welcome the blessings that come when we orient the actions of our life around the character and image of Christ. And yeah, we pray that those two realities, your worth and our good, God, would, would perfectly align we live these lives yielded to you. That indeed our very selves would be a sacrifice to you worthy, worthy of the one we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So just take a moment, God, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do? This too is part of our worship. 